Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre, with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. On each episode, we'll talk with biographers about their work. This time, we interviewed David Wallstreicher, author of The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley, a poet's journey through American slavery and independence. It was published by Farah Strauss and Giroux in March 2023. Wallstreicher teaches history at the City University of New York, and he has written for numerous publications. He was interviewed by fellow biographer and bio member Gretchen Holbrook-Gerzina. David Wallstreicher, welcome to the Bio Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's so interesting that you wrote about Phyllis Wheatley. This is the second book on Wheatley, I think, in a few years. And yours was very different from what I'd seen before. As um, our listeners probably know, I hope, know, Phyllis Wheatley was an enslaved woman brought to Boston from Africa in the mid-18th century and has been known and celebrated since she was quite young. So to set the stage... What can you tell us about who she was, how she lived, and how she came to write poetry? Wheatley was born in West Africa, probably, most likely. And we do know that she came over on a slave ship. And we know who the master was. We know what ship it was. We know when it was. And she was about seven or eight years old. She came to Boston. And unusually... And as the story was told by herself and by members of the Wheatley family, she uh, very quickly showed an aptitude for learning and um, wanting to read and write and was taught or found ways to gain literacy. And within a few years of her arrival in 1761, she was experimenting with various genres of poetry. So Really, by the time she's about 12, she's writing poetry and people are talking about it. And then by the time she's 14, one of her poems appears in the newspaper. And then by 1770, when her poem on the death of George Whitfield makes her famous on both sides of the Atlantic. It's really the uh, most circulated and best known of the many of the uh, many elegies that were written and published on the death of Whitfield. So very quickly, she becomes known as a prodigy and as an exception that may or may not prove various rules about how people think about Africans and what is possible if they are treated in certain ways, which is a indirect way of saying she becomes a flashpoint for the politics of slavery. She becomes, in effect, a one woman or one adolescent anti-slavery argument at a time when slavery is increasingly politicized as a result of the imperial controversy. So she's um, not just a first as a poet, as a woman, as an enslaved person publishing. She's also uh, a first politically in terms of uh, being a uh, representative of the race and a controversial figure who uh, both reflects and forwards important trends in anti-slavery and, frankly, the pro-slavery response to anti-slavery. 
Wheelie's life, it, it offers us a, a wider view of the way that people lived and worked in New England in the 18th century, especially in Boston, and especially as an enslaved woman in an urban environment. So even so, she had a pretty privileged upbringing. I mean, she didn't just one day sit down and start writing neoclassical poetry. So she must have had a library. She had a family that encouraged this. So you could just tell us the context for her her young life. Well, I'm hesitant to, as many biographers and critics have done, I'm hesitant to stress the privilege because that has often carried with it as baggage certain presumptions about her not having to work or not really being treated as an enslaved person or experiencing slavery in the ways that we usually think about it. And I don't think we really know how she felt about her enslavement, whether she thought, as it sometimes seems, that it was a very common experience or whether she um, experienced it as something more like the modern racialized oppression or social death to use Orlando Patterson's phrase, that we have rightly associated with it. I think gradually we can see her experimenting with different ways of spinning her experience and talking about what it means for her to be converted, to be Christian, to be culturally literate in New England, to be participating in the politics of the imperial controversy. So I think that while there's certainly a good argument to be made that she's unusual, I think that the context I try to set up through close reading of the newspapers and the scholarship on New England and Atlantic slavery is that enslaved people are being used in all kinds of ways in Boston, and many of them are highly skilled, but we shouldn't use that to presume that slavery is then fundamentally different than it was in other places in Anglo-America. We see lots of brutality, and most of all, we see the threat of being sold, and also the near impossibility of forming family bonds. And if that isn't slavery, I don't know what is. So I think that those aspects of slavery where she's lost her family, she's trying to make kin or something like kinship with various white people and other Africans who are uh, proximate, and that she's looking to recreate those kinds of bonds while being fully aware that it's a lot of hard work and highly contingent but that her ability to, we might say, express herself, we might say to please others, may change her life very much and may even free her if she can capitalize on the skills she's developing. So just at a nuts and bolts level, who were the Wheatleys? Where did yes. she, who were the family? Who, where, <laughs> how did she learn to read and write? <laughs> well, I'm very careful about that because we don't know. It's most likely she was taught by Susanna Wheatley and her daughter, Mary. John Wheatley was a wealthy tailor, uh, but really more of a merchant. He owns a ship. He uh, has a, a house that was later referred to as a mansion right in the center of town. He's a businessman. Susanna Wheatley is an educated woman who is very much involved in evangelical and blue stocking circles. She supports efforts to evangelize among the natives. And um, there's evidence that she and John Wheatley were probably present when Wheatley spoke in various churches during the first Great Awakening, 30 years before. So I think the two most important things about the Wheatley family is 
being imbricated in Atlantic trade, which includes slavery. And on the other hand, this evangelical reform subculture, which is very active and which is particularly energizing for women. So that is how she ends up becoming this, we might say, experiment. But I would rather think of it as she's in a situation where she can perhaps move herself from becoming just another object of trade or laborer in a household to being a family member and um, conversion and improvement project at a time when some of these evangelicals thought, well, maybe slavery is all right if we convert these peoples, indigenous people, Africans, and we are in effect grooming them to, if not be free, to play an increasingly important role in the colonial project so that then the colonies are not this kind of inferior place where there are savages and people are just out to make money and get ahead, but rather the colonies are more of a conversion engine and reform engine for the entire British Empire. That's how I think people like the Wheatleys are thinking of themselves and thinking about what it means to have a pious prodigy who's writing poetry that they are actually going to help get published and they are going to encourage, but not necessarily free her, or they're going to put off that question until she's a grown-up. So she's very immersed in the events going on all around her. I mean, this is a hugely important historical period for us looking back a couple hundred years. Did she think of herself as American or African or British? This is something you bring up several times in your book. Yes. I'm waiting for the reviewer who says that uh, my book is too much about identity. Um, somebody will say that. But I do think that she's always dealing with this question of, of who she is and how people see her and what the implications of that are. Her answer to the identity question, and this is one of the reasons why I, I think it's so interesting and important, is not, am I African or am I American or am I British? Which, and which side am I going to choose? It's, I'm all three. And that's very clear by the time she's getting put on the spot about it in the early 1770s. Every time somebody tries to typecast her, she refuses it and tries to turn it on its head. And um, when you read what she's doing against like who she's responding to and how she's being prompted and then what her poetic and other responses in the letters we have are, it becomes very clear that she's kind of a universalist and, and egalitarian as well as a Christian. But she doesn't see why there's any reason why she can't be black and American and English at the same time. And, and part of the poignancy and tragedy of the American Revolution is that the American Revolution makes it impossible for all those things to fit neatly together. Yeah. And, and when I think about identity, I don't just think of Wheatley's own identity, what she thought of herself, but also colonial identity, where they're trying to figure out who they are. She can write a letter to George Washington in a poem at the same time that she also writes them to British officers and elegies of people who have completely different political and historical stances. So it does make us think about what kind of a place this was that she's living in, where everybody's trying to figure out who and what they are. Yes. In our search for understanding Black experiences and Black identities in the 18th century and beyond, we've sometimes underestimated what it meant for these Creole figures and these people who experienced migration to be colonial, to have an, uh, a complicated relationship to the empire 
and to the provinces that they happen to be in or that the multiple provinces that they happen to move through. And like people who are immigrants and like people who are uh, post-colonial in different places and times, uh, she thinks and talks about it differently in different situations to different people. Her uh, identity is, uh, we can use negative language like fractured, but we could also use positive language like contingent and creative. And um, I think that's the sort of thing that Vin Coretta was grappling toward when he started to write about Equiano fashioning himself as American and that being just as important as uh, him being the African as British. And it's unfortunate that it became a kind of um, that debate about whether Equiano, as author of the first slave narrative, whether the documents he found indicated that he was really born in the colonies or he was really African, as he said in his narrative, because the larger point is that he wasn't necessarily really a choice for him. He Maybe he even fudged it precisely because it was so ambiguous and contingent and meanings were politicized for him and for all his contemporaries. And so I would see Wheatley as quite similar, even though it's quite clear where she was born and, and when she came over and, and, and how transformative it was for her to actually go to London as it was for Equiano. Right. You know, you're a historian. You're used to looking at these big questions and you're used to researching facts and trying to interpret them. But then in this book, you find yourself having to explain a lot about neoclassical poetry and uh, literary allusions and uh, metaphors in a kind of language that's very different for modern readers, I think, to understand. This kind of poetry seems very foreign, I think, to modern readers. And yet you have to spend a great deal of time in your book parsing that poetry and including some interpretations of its irony sometimes and satirical aspects of it sometimes. I've actually never seen someone take apart Wheatley's poetry over a stretch of time the way you've had to do from your perspective, which is one of a historian. So how did you want to approach all of this poetry? Can you say a little bit about that? Yes, thank you. Um, I have a few answers to this. I'll try to make them brief. One of my main entry points was uh, a realization that I felt that her poems had not been placed in time. Because she had a sh relatively short career and because the issues of identity seemed so central, even though some excellent literary critics had detected a, um, an evolution, a growth, uh, a growth in range and a growth in skill in her poetry, I felt that there hadn't been enough attention to audience and to exactly when she's writing particular poems. And as a political historian, I felt that just how political her poetry was, both in terms of anti-slavery politics and in terms of imperial politics, that it had been missed because the folks who had been writing about her weren't that interested in what was going on in the newspapers or in and in the in the colonies and in the politics. So that became my um, approach to some of the first poems I wrote about in some essays, articles I wrote was that uh, it was essential to pay attention to what else was going on and when exactly she was writing. So in making those arguments, I got that response from my, one of my colleagues, Duncan Faherty, like, it's like, okay, this is great, but are you actually going to interpret the poems? I mean, you don't, you know, you don't go on, you don't talk about any of them for more than a paragraph or two in this, in this overview piece that he had read. And um, that emboldened me in terms of thinking about this as a book and a biography to see if I could wed that biographer 
and historian insistence on time to the literary analysis and see if I could plot her poems as actions in time. And I ended up realizing that in order to do that, but keep the reader involved and also acknowledge the limits of the unevenness of the evidence, I needed to go with short chapters, ideally where I would be unpacking one or at most two or three of her poems. It's not the same structure in every chapter, but th that generally became the idea. And I, at some point I realized, you know, like actually what I need is something like the structure of Homer's Odyssey. <laughs> That's the kind of like length that like there has to be some drama going on as well as some kind of confrontation or story being told in the way Homer uh, has these um, these chapters that are of varying length, but they're never too long. So that was how it evolved. But uh, my PhD is in American studies. I was an English major as an undergrad. I'm a cultural historian and a political historian, but I've always felt like I wanted to keep doing literary work. So I'm comfortable doing close reading. I'm comfortable with poetry. It's, to be writing about poetry was more of a return to things I did a long time ago when I was a student. But um, in terms of the the kinds of things that the book does, it, it has felt like a happy combination of a lot of things that I have enjoyed doing over the years. And also, frankly, wanting to do her justice and wanting it to be the best written book I could possibly write as a way of people getting the message that she was a major writer and a great artist. Say something about her trip to London. She got there. Who did she meet? How did she get there? How did her book come to be published? We don't have, that's your whole book in some ways, but just in the six weeks of her life, plus what, six weeks on each end just to get there and back. Um, what was her trip to London like? How did that change her? The reason for her going and the reason and timing of her return are described different ways, in part because she and others say different things to different people about them. The most important background is that she tried to get her book published in Boston. By the time we get to 1772 or so, uh, nobody seems to want to touch it. And the economy is not so great. And the printers who were interested are not in a position to do it. And she's becoming more famous. So the Wheatleys or she get the idea that if they can get one of these publishers who, who uh, and get the right patrons, and particularly it turned out Countess of Huntingdon, who was a major benefactor of Methodists and um, evangelical projects and also underwrote some of the first slave narratives. Uh, they hook up with her and her printer through the good offices of the ship captain and of uh, the London packet, which John Wheatley owns. And around this time, the younger, uh, the Wheatley's younger surviving son, Nathaniel Wheatley, is planning to go over to London himself for business reasons. So she accompanies him to oversee the printing of the volume, but also as a kind of publicity tour, but also to prove that she's really who she says she is, because there's some skepticism that like, well, if, if nobody's seen her, how do we know that she's really written these poems? So uh, there's, a, there's a famous story about Wheatley that is usually told that she was put on trial, as, as uh, in the words that Henry Louis Gates Jr. has used, by Boston worthies in order to prove that she had written them. And then when, that, when she demonstrated that she had written the poems by answering their questions, they said, OK, we will attest that she really wrote these poems and then the book can be published. And then that's the story. Well, actually... The attestation that these 12 worthies in Boston do, that's just 
for the printed publicity. They already know her. They already know she's written it. They just go around with a piece of paper. The Wheatleys go around, or Phyllis herself maybe, we don't know, go around with a piece of paper and ask them to sign. Really, everyone in Boston already knows that she's that she's really written them. It's just in London that they don't know. And they need this document to be part of the front matter of the book. And the insurance is that she's going to go over there and anyone who knows you enough to want to have to interview her can do that. So she goes over, but I I, I think it's it's even more of a uh, a marketing plan than um, some of the excellent stuff's been written about this by by Vin Coretta and Kristen Wilcox suggests um, one of the first places she goes is to uh, one of the leading patrons of poetry for the last four decades, who is a, a sadly forgotten figure and who dies two weeks after he meets her, and that's that's part of the story. So uh, she. She goes around, she meets all these famous people, and she later writes about that in Letters Home, including Granville Sharp, including some of the leading blue stockings. And there's talk of an audience with the king, and she sees Lord Dartmouth, who she had um, written a poem about, and that had probably also helped set this journey up. It's really, uh, she gets a sense of, wow, I'm even more, I'm I'm becoming even more famous than I had any idea. And already there's talk in London about, oh, she's still enslaved. And she's really this amazing. She's really this genius. Boy, those Americans, what's wrong with them? Don't they know that like highly skilled slaves who are poets should be free emancipated? So it becomes this moment where you see this tension in what slavery is thought to be. There's this open question about modern slavery, which is that, is it this racializing juggernaut and it's hereditary and it's only for black people? Or is it this temporary thing where slaves are people who are captured in wartime or sold by their parents or something, and then they're brought somewhere else to be enslaved, but they can earn their freedom because that's no threat to the system. And that's what slavery had been for most of human history. It's only in the new world that it's becoming this particularly racialized hereditary thing. And insofar as people are starting to argue that there's something wrong with slavery or wrong with this new world version of it, her fate is something that brings out that question about the future of slavery and the possibilities of emancipation. I think she realizes that and she puts herself in a position to capitalize on the accusations of hypocrisy, which start to actually get into print while she's still uh, over there. So she's over there for six weeks. And then when the London packet comes back, she gets on it, possibly because Susanna Wheatley is very sick. And that's one of the reasons she says. But then she also said that she was going on the voyage for her health, not to market her book. So there's a lot of kind of like, oh, I'm not doing this this innovative, daring, possibly unfeminine thing I'm doing. I'm doing it for other reasons, right? But really, she'd already accomplished what she had set out to accomplish. And Nathaniel Wheatley doesn't want to come back yet. So she comes back. She comes back. She finally is freed. She's emancipated. That happens. But that comes with its own problems. I mean, she now, you know, as the Wheatleys die off... She is actually responsible for supporting herself and finding where to live and a war is going on and all of these things have been happening. So can you tell us quickly about her marriage? Because she does get married to someone named John Peters. Their marriage has conflicting stories about it. We we don't have time to go through the whole thing, but she does die young. So if we could just say something about the rest of her life. Right. Well, she keeps writing poems, I think some of them anonymously, during the war. 
it's very hard to publish anything during the war and um, the economy is not good. Uh, but it's clear that she had plans for another volume. Susanna Wheatley dies. Mary Wheatley dies. Nathaniel Wheatley stays over in London. The family is kind of splitting up. She's emancipated after she comes back and the Wheatleys are kind of embarrassed. And when it becomes clear that John Wheatley is dying and he dies and in his will, he doesn't leave her anything. And it's not clear she's going to get be able to stay in the in the increasingly empty mansion house. She gets married. And she marries a very impressive guy, John Peters, who is known for his appearances in court and for um, being a somewhat successful merchant. And um, there's a sufficient testimony that he himself is quite impressive. And they seem to prosper for a year or two. But like many others in Boston and Massachusetts during the war years, during the early 1780s, things take a different turn. He's got a lot of debts. They have to leave town. There's a possibility of his inheriting or coming into some rural property. So they go move out to this town and things don't work out with this family that he had grown up with. And um, they move back to Boston and uh, he's in debtor's prison. And in 1784, she dies and she's only 31. So it's a tragic ending. But I think the bigger story is that she succeeded in making her own family, getting married. She had children. We don't know how many. It appears that they died either before or around the same time she did. But she's hardly the only poet in the late 18th century to not be able to make a living or come to a young tragic end. If anything, that's usually the story for the budding, the romantic generation of poets that is uh, just on the horizon in the 1780s. So I tend to resist the tragic narrative and Although it is a major fact that she loses her patronage when she becomes free, when the Wheatleys die out, and when the politics is completely different. So does she lose her audience? Yes. Is she not able to publish her second volume, which is already, there's already enough for a second volume? Yes. But um, she also was chronically ill for much of her life. So it's easy to imagine that things could have turned out a little differently and we would not see her story as tragic if we had a second volume or if she had lived a little bit longer? Well, there is a second volume in the sense that people have been writing and talking about her for a very long time. Um, and it changes with the wind of the time and the culture and the history of the time. And so you do talk about that at the end. And if we had more time, I would go into all of those, what you call the afterlives of Phyllis Wheatley, which is great. So David Wall Streicher, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. His book, The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley, is published by FSG. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. That was David Wallstreicher, author of The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley, A Poet's Journey Through American Slavery and Independence. This interview was recorded via Zoom on August 18th of last year. To learn more about bio or to hear other episodes in our podcast series, please visit our website biographersinternational.org. I'm bio member Sonia Williams in Washington, D.C. Alani Hodge created our theme music. And until next time, thanks so much for listening and have a fantastic day.